Hello, welcome to episode 11 of Defense Against the Dark Arts. I'm Paul Mill, and today we're going to be talking about feeding the monster. G.K. Chesterton, the, uh, an old British author, uh, wrote, The function of the imagination is to not make strange things settled so much as to make settled things strange. I think he was a little off on that. It's, it's pretty good. It's a good quote. I'll give him that. But I think it was a little off. I think the, the function of the imagination is to both make strange things understandable and to make understood things strange. Like how critical thinking is to make unknown things known and to make known things unknown. <laughs> that might sound crazy, but if you think about it, it's to examine things that you think you know. If you think you know it, that's a known thing. And sometimes you don't know things that you think you know. So that's the whole point of making known things unknown. Things that you think you know that you might be wrong about actually are unknown. And to make things that are unknown knowable. So things you don't know about, you're going to think about it, and then you're going to start learning about it. You're actually going to start knowing about it. So that's the the breakdown of that. All right. So uh, does critical thinking, you know, weaken your confidence about you know, being right about things, you know, no, you know, not being, not being confident about being right is not the same as, uh, not being a confident person. It takes a confident person to be, you know, to accept that they don't know things and to question, you know, the things that they think they already know. That's why it's called critical thinking. You know, uh, I used to work with these, uh, you know, critical thinking. I used to work with these, uh, two Russians, I think they're from Kazakhstan, so I don't know if they're actually Russians, but they were they spoke Russian. Anyways, the one guy had a PhD, and the other guy was was just an engineer. And the uh, the guy with the PhD would always say "niakritichna," you know, not critical. You know, it's not critical, right? So you'd say "niakritichna," right? The other guy was just uh, an engineer, so he he couldn't think outside the box. He had to follow lists. But the PhD guy was always funny. "Niakritichna," it's not critical. So I don't know if he was thinking about critical thinking or what, but uh, they always said it was, it was funny. Anyways, so uh, Marshall McLuhan um, once talked about the uh, the definition of the word read, which uh, I thought was kind of interesting. He said it, it comes from the old English radon, which means to guess. And he said that when you're reading, you're constantly guessing about the meanings of the words because most words have multiple meanings. So that is kind of interesting how you think when you're actually reading, it's automatic. So you are not jumping, to, well, you are jumping to conclusions, but you're holding off until you finish the sentence. Like, uh, what's that one? Like, uh, the mouse was eating cheese on the desk, right? You pictured a brown mouse or the mouse plugged into the USB, right? So you're picturing, you know, a, a desk mouse. So you didn't pick a br picture a brown mouse first when you're talking about plugging into a desk. It's funny how your brain will hold off for a moment. And that's what you want to practice doing more. You want your brain to hold off. It doesn't automatically when you're reading, but you want it to hold off, you know, jumping to conclusions and jumping to assumptions. But we do it so fast when we're reading. It's incredible when you think about it. But that's what Marshall McLuhan was kind of, you know, fascinated by, which is, it is pretty, pretty crazy how fast your brain works when you're reading. You're jumping to all the different definitions of what all the different words mean, and you're actually picturing things. Anyways, so I looked it up to see if he was right, and there is, there's five definitions to the word. Most of the, the etymology that I looked up couldn't find, didn't have uh, guess as the, the word for the definition of the word, you know, for read, the etymology of it. 
but I looked up radon and sure enough, there's five definitions to that word. The one is read. Another one is to advise. Another one is to guess. So McLuhan was right. The third definition is to guess. Talking about the word radon, the old English. Uh, another definition is to interpret or explain. And another definition of the word radon is to decide. So you put all those together and it kind of makes sense, you know, when you think about how our brains work when it comes to reading. So this is a, sort of a bit of a tangent, but I thought it was kind of interesting when, uh, when he was talking. A more interesting, not more interesting, a uh, more critically, Kritichna, uh, Marshall McLuhan once said, uh, the hidden aspects of the media are the things that should be taught because they have an irresistible force when invisible. When these factors remain ignored and invisible, they have an absolute power over the user. The sooner the population, young or old, can be taught the effects of these forms, the sooner we can have some sort of reasonable ecology among the media themselves. So this 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 is a quote from him talking. So the words are kind of, you know, a little all over the place, but it's, it's interesting to hear him say that, you know, the, the hidden aspects of the media are the things that should be taught because they have an irresistible force when, when they're invisible. When you don't know about them, you can easily be manipulated by them. You know, when the factors remain ignored and invisible, they have an absolute power over the user. I think Marshall McLuhan was right about that. And uh, what else did he say? He said, what is desperately needed is the kind of understanding of the media which would permit us to program the whole environment so the literate values would not be wiped out by the new media. I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but <laughs> literate, I guess, you know, uh, the concept of, you know, reading, maybe that part. And he was talking more about TV and radio. But, uh, you know, this obviously holds for all forms of media, you know, print media was around back then. But anyways, he continued to say, if you understand the nature of these forms, you can neutralize some of their adverse effects and foster some of their beneficent effects. This is, wait. So he went on to say, if you understand the nature of these forms, you can neutralize some of their adverse effects and foster some of their beneficent effects. This is, this we have never reached. This we have never reached this level of awareness. Again, he's talking. So this quote isn't, you know, he never wrote it and edited it. It's just how it sort of flowed out of his mouth. This we have never reached. So we have never reached this level of awareness is what he's saying. We've never reached a level of awareness where the people understand the nature of the forms of media in order to neutralize some of their adverse effects. He said he's been working on that for a long time. And then he goes on to talk about uh, Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. He said, it's one of the top guides to the effects of media. The work is entirely devoted to that theme. The actors in the play are the media themselves. Very few Joyceans know this. The word quark apparently was originated from uh, Joyce's book, Finnegan's Wake. Uh, I'm not sure if... Uh, if the, the if you have anybody tried ever tried to read that book, maybe I'll give it another shot. But it's it's a rambling chaos. So I'll, maybe I'll read it again with the new uh, new eyes. But um, I think that uh, it's more of a Rorschach test, and Marshall McLuhan might have been finding meaning based solely on his, you know, his his own thought patterns, his own schema, like a mirror reflecting back. You know, looking into it and seeing what he wanted to see. <laughs> 
I said, I don't, th- I don't think that's maybe it is. Again, I'll look at it again. It's been a long time since I tried to read it. A lot of these books, like War and Peace, they're just garbage. You know, you try to read these books, it's like a massive tome. You think, okay, well, you know, Lord of the Rings was pretty big. That was pretty big. That was pretty interesting. So give, uh, you know, War and Peace a try. It's the most boring garbage. I don't know. understand how literacy, uh, yeah. Well, literacy, you know, not mean literature, I mean, is what the word I'm looking for, but it's just garbage. I don't know how people can, oh, it's a, such a good book. Oh, War and Peace. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Tolstoy. Uh, crap. Threw it across the room, suffered. I read it, started reading it, and then it started. It was agonizing, and then I was reading more. It's like it's like, uh, it's like watching some or reading some horrible, you know, soap opera that's just boring as all hell. Like who the hell would read that? You have to be like, I mean, to be that bored to read that book. I don't know. So again, he uh, McLuhan went on to say one of the particular effects. One, okay, I'm going to read here what uh, more about McLuhan said here. One of the peculiar effects of the media on politics is that the parties and policies become very unimportant, and the image of the politician takes on a tremendous new importance. In video, radio politics, so that was in video, radio politics is a completely different message. He also said that a politician must have charisma in the in the in the new video age and charisma means looking like a lot of other people according to McLuhan so he also said people get the government that they deserve and so the uh, the medium would get the content that it deserves so if you go on twitter all that uh, that's what the, that's what social media deserves so getting back to critical thinking yes critical thinkers will you know, question things that they think they already know. You know, it's not to say that they they're that we don't know things that are true, like two plus two equals four. You know, this is something that we can measure, right? Regardless of what the critical race theory idiots are saying out there, and they're trying to push on us that you know two and two doesn't equal four, and it's some patriarchy and you know white nationalism that's created this two plus two equals four business. It is insane what they're saying. So there are objective truths, you know, that rational people can observe and agree on. You know, there, there are, these are concepts that humans discussed thousands of years ago. Not to say that any, everything they discussed thousands of years ago is true, but I mean, these concepts have been around, you know, with humans for a long time, right? You know, when you read, you know, Aristotle or Plato or Sun Tzu and Marcus Aurelius, you know, or or any of any of the uh, the math giants, you know, these people are all trying to examine and study the truth, the objective truth. The truth has never been under attack to the extent that it is today. Never in the history of humanity has the need for for critical thinking been more needed. You know, and, and our universities, politicians, and radio talk show hosts are doing everything in their power to destroy critical thinking. As a propaganda tool, they can claim to be on the side of what they do. They claim to be on the side of science and logic and reason when in fact they are the enemies to it. You'd think our society would have evolved to the point where at least our experts understand the the fundamentals of objective truth. You know, a lot of them claim they do, but the results are varying. <laughs> Politics, news, 
And in the universities, the crap that we see coming out of them is, is unacceptable. But even the idiots in, in the hard sciences are corrupted by the theologic ideology that has no other true purpose you know, other than destroying modern Western society, Western culture. And, and the base of, of monumental reasoning that has, that has built that culture. You know, we're living in an age when university students, graduates, and, and their teachers would cheerfully burn the Library of Alexandria. You know, when, when only a few years ago, people would feel sick to their stomach at the, the idea, you know, of, of the loss of that hard-earned knowledge. You know, and the slimy red dragon grins and feeds our society opioids and, and fentanyl and, and, and what's that other one? Carfentanyl, you know, as a racist revenge against the West, you know, against the, the you know, the Anglo corporate, you know, expansionisms from 200 years ago. Right. So the, the children of the West are responsible for the actions of what a few individuals did centuries ago from other another country. You know, like it was the British. What was that kind of the the. Uh, the, the, the East India company, I think that was in, in China, you know, and they're with the Hong Kong and all that stuff and, and, and the opioids and all that, like that was <laughs> nothing to do with, you know, other Western countries and the, nobody who's alive today had anything to do with it. Right. But it seems to be that there's a revenge against Western society by the red dragon, you know, and, and, uh, and corrupted individuals in key positions in our society are, are willing to participants to destruction of our own culture and our own society for a few gold coins from the dragon's horde. You know, the, this is the logic of today, you know, traditional liberalism, the, the, the concept of live and let live, you know, is, is being replaced or has been replaced with this new liberalism, you know, the neoliberalism, a critical race theory, division, promotion of hatred and anything that is Western culture. Like it's so blatantly obvious to anybody who, you know, pays attention to it. And the scary thing is that when you, if you talk about it and, and you, you, uh, you, you discuss it, a lot of people are scared to discuss it. Well, what's wrong with our society when you can't talk about people who are actively trying to destroy our society? Like that is, those hooks are in deep, you know, Talk about culture. Culture actually is a pretty interesting word. You know, it's, it has a literal meaning and it has a figurative meaning. And the, the etymology, it comes back from, you know, when people would till the land, right? And prepare it for crops, you know, as an agriculture, you know, the Latin term colere, uh, is to tend, to guard, to till, you know, the word colony also came from colere. So colony is, is, you know, the word uh, is a word that the new, the neoliberals politically weaponize, you know, colony as if it's an intrinsic evil, which it's not a colony is not the word colony is not evil colonization is not evil to spread your culture is, is not evil, you know, to destroy another culture. Yeah. Maybe that's evil or you could debate it, right? But that's literally what's happening to our culture right now. It, it's people are trying to destroy the culture and, you know, uh, but in eventually the word culture, you know, eventually meant to rearing a crop, promoting growth and selected pants, <laughs> pants, plants like agriculture or, you know, uh, to cultivate, Right, these culture cultivate agriculture. You know, back in the in the uh, by the late eighteen hundreds, it included bacterial production. You know, you think like a culture of bacteria. You know, what's you know you're you're making a culture, right? So the the of course the it also has a figurative meaning. You know, cultivation through education, systemic improvement, and refinement of the mind. 
you know, this goes all the way back to 500 or more than 500 years ago. You know, the ancient Greeks and the Romans obviously had this concept, but I'm sure they had different words for it other than cultivate. But the, uh, the ancient Roman skeptic, uh, Cicero, Marcus Tilius Cicero, he lived 2000 years ago. A lot of people will, will, will know his story. Um, he tried in vain to, uh, well, he used the Latin version of this, you know, when he would try to, to, to uphold the culture of, you know, the Roman empire, you know, when they, when they were collapsing and but anyways, so he, he tried in vain to uphold the concepts of civilization during the, the final civil wars in the, in the Roman Republic collapsed. Right. But, uh, it's kind of an interesting story of Cicero. He, uh, he refused, I don't know if I should go into Cicero, but, uh, yeah, maybe I won't go too much into Cicero. That's a bit of a side. Interesting story though. How, uh, he, he was eventually, uh, he was cronies with Caesar and, uh, and, uh, it's an interesting story. You look it up, but they eventually, uh, a lot of drama and they eventually killed him <laughs> after Caesar was killed. And, you know, the night of a thousand knives, 23 knives, he was stabbed by other senators. Cicero was not participating in that stabbing of Caesar, but Caesar's son, Octavius, who became, uh, the emperor Augustus, uh, found out that Cicero had bad mouthed him. I can't remember. What did he say? He said, uh, the young man should be given praise and distinctions and then disposed of. And when, uh, Caesar's son, Octavius, or heard about this, uh, oh, good grief. When Caesar's son heard about this, he, uh, he, uh, you know, had Cicero killed, chopped his head and hands off and put him on display at the, uh, in the, in the, uh, the speaker's platform at the forum in the, in Rome. Anyways, my phone's going to keep on ringing here. I should turn the stupid thing off. So culture, um, there's a culture shock when people are, uh, you know, exposed to a different society. Um, you know, they, they've never contemplated, like if you traveled around the world, you know, you'll see this, there's things that you're like, wow, that's, that's different. I, I didn't think that, you know, humans would view that differently or, you know, humans would do things differently. You, you sort of have an assumption that everybody has the same core values and you'll, you realize, you know, we, we're told this and we, we sort of, you know, we, you know, uh, logically think it, but then when you're exposed to it, it's a different world. Like, like in Thailand, if somebody sees the bottom of your feet, they get highly offended or, you know, we don't care about the bottom of your feet. Who cares? Right different cultures, different views. And it's, it's bigger than that. It's, it's pretty crazy on the, the, the differences that the world views and the values that different cultures have. And, uh, you know, and a lot of times if you naive people in our culture will have a hard time, or I guess in other cultures too, they have a hard time believing that other, our culture views things differently. And, you know, again, going back to Marshall McLuhan, he was talking about the, uh, the cultures of the Orient and the South Pacific, he said, they're, they're right hemisphered, you know, your brain, right hemisphere, not globally. They typically play things by ear. And, uh, he said, there's, there's less or no individual identity in the East. Whereas the West, uh, were, were left hemisphere Euclidean based. And it's funny, you know, the, the, he talks about, you know, there's always a bottom line. We're very analytical, visual based, uh, society. And we very much embrace the concept of individuality, whereas in the East, they don't. They It's more of collective. So the worldview of the collective versus a worldview of the individual is is 
built into different cultures and they go back thousands of years. So that is fundamental changes that, you know, that people may not be able to bridge, right? You, at the core of your being, you have certain values that you will not change, right? So they are, uh, yeah. So this, this concept of different cultures is, is a good thing. We need variety. Like if you have a farm and you have all these different types of potatoes and a blight moves in and it kills one variety of potato, the other potatoes will be fine. So you want to have variable or varied cultures. That This is a very nationalist view. You don't want globalism where it's like a monocrop where every culture, every ideals and, and all people have the same values. This just not to say that one value is better than other values. The globalists want to imprint their values. Well, actually the globalists are more just about finance. They don't care about your values as long as you're in their factories, stamping out running shoes and iPhones. So concepts change, but what remains is there are different values and perspectives and different cultures. And not everyone of, of any culture is, is a, a monolithic representation of that culture. You know, they'll, they'll have a more probability of alignment towards it. But you look at our culture, you know, there's no agreement. You know, you say, okay, the people in the West, yeah, they have Western values. Yeah, generally we do have Western values. You know, we, we believe in lines. <laughs> people should line up and, and it's, you know, fair. You know, whereas in other cultures, they don't, they don't believe in, they're like, what are you talking about a line? Why would you line up? You know, you go to Egypt, it's like what, the, or, or, you know, United Arab Emirates or any of these places, like lines are, what the hell are you lining up for? Like they just have a totally different view that it's not good or bad. It's just a different thing. We're here. We're more Euclidean systemic. We believe in, you know, you know, this person's in the queue, then the next person's in the queue. Other cultures, not so much. And, you know, not to say one's better than the other, you know, one makes more sense or maybe it doesn't make more sense. I don't, I don't know how they work it out. Like, you know, you, go to the, you just got to push through the crowd and I guess it's might is right. So I don't know when you, you know, you want to get a, you want to go to a fast food place and get some food. You just got to push through the crowd and, you know, or and it doesn't matter. But, uh, and if you think everybody in the same culture has the same worldview, well, they don't. I mean, you just go on Twitter and observe the monkeys flinging shit at each other, you know, all the, the or you're just looking at politics, right? This is not agreement. People in, they, they have fundamental uh, values, you know, where they sort of believe things are, you know, in the Western, you know, lineups, there's sort of a, a, a gross, uh, a coarse, uh, brush stroke of values. And then as they get finer and finer, there's, it's chaos, right? There's this, and then it's varied, which is a good thing, but there's no agreement and there's no monolithic unity, but there are massive bulk coarse. What's the word I'm looking for? Broad, uh, agreements in values, you know, in, in, in larger swaths of different cultures. And today we're used to other cultures. So, you know, we experience culture shock to a lesser extent, depending on the individual, but there's still many in our society who don't believe that other cultures actually have different values. They think all humans share, you know, some intrinsic value, you know, of good and bad, which we don't, you know, there's, there's different, you know, different values. That's what values mean. Different laws, different values. People believe different things. And I'm not just talking about believing, you know, astrology versus, you know, astronomy. I'm talking about what is right. Some people believe certain things are right and other people to the core of their being believe those things are wrong. You know, and that's, that's different cultures. 
you know, and this is the main reason why multi, true multiculturalism is not feasible. Nations are a good thing. Have different nations, different areas, borders. You know, people can get along, but, you know, they have their own laws and in you have your own laws. And people who agree with those laws can move to the place where those values are held and people who can, you know, move to those places where those laws are held. Yeah, so there's, there's a main reason why multiculturalism, true multiculturalism is not feasible. Uh, you can't have one set of laws for everyone in a society when laws are established based on generally shared uh, values by that group of people, by that society. It's impossible to have one law, you know, with incongruent values and beliefs. An example of this is female genital mutilation. Western values shudder at the horror of, you know, the, and the inhumane practice of forced female genital mutilation on young girls, the manipulation, you know, you know, performed by these savages, yet these savages really want to mutilate these female genitals, right? So these, and, and in their culture, you know, it's cool. In our culture, it's not. So these two values are incongruent. You, you can't have those two values in, in a same society. You have to have different nations. And if people, you know, if that society's cool with that, who are we to judge, right? You know, the same thing there, they shouldn't be judging our society, right? So, I mean, fundamentally, I really don't agree with it, but what are you going to do? You know, I think the, the concept of, we'll, we'll go into uh, nationalism, nationalism versus globalism later on. Let's take, oh, for fuck's sakes. Anyways, so Jacob Bronowski explains it pretty well. He says that uh, all life on earth has evolved to fit in an ecosystem like cogged wheels in a, in a machine. That is except man. Man does not fit perfectly in any environment, which makes him adapt, which allows him to thrive in any environment. Man's evolution is not biological, it's cultural. And, the, and he calls this evolution the ascent of man. So anyone who attacks your culture is literally attacking you, you as a, your, as a species, you know, anyone claims that, you know, you don't have a culture is claiming that you are a non-people. This is a calculated and deliberate attack. A culture may not even, you know, most cultures, if you think about it internally, you don't realize you have a culture, you know, because there's, there's, this is just the way it is. This is the way we do things. You don't question it unless you travel around the world and you see there are other ways of doing it. And you realize you have that culture shock that, wow, other people actually do have different values and they do believe different things. They do believe different right and, and, and wrongs, right? So, so for you, your culture is transparent. You don't see it. It's just, it's just the way it is. And so it's easy to convince somebody in a culture that they don't have a culture when in fact they do. This, this, this attack is, is commonplace in universities of the West today. Culturally, universities are the bottom of the bucket. Instead of higher learning, they are centers of indoctrination to the cult of nihilism and destruction of Western culture. Culture, cult. So you think, you know, they're a cult of nihilism. So you think of the word cult, it shares its origin with the with, with the culture, obviously cult, culture, cultivate, right. And colony going back to colaire, the, I don't know how you pronounce it, but the Latin word colaire, which, you know, means to till, you know, which leads to cultus, which is care, labor, cultivation, culture, worship, reverence, 
It wasn't until the 1800s when the uh, the French, with their butchered version of Latin, uh, brought the modern meaning of the word cult. They were re- referring to ancient or primitive systems of religious belief and worship, especially the rites and ceremonies of those those such you know worships. <laughs> is, that, is that a word? Anyway, so cult, you know, it, it had an extended meaning, which was you know devoted attention to a particular person of thing. You know, like a cult of personality, I guess. It, you know, the, I like the modern definition. I don't know if this is official, but the the modern definition of cult is an organized group of people with whom you disagree. <laughs> it's like so. If there's any organized group of people you don't agree with, you call them a cult, and that seems to be what's going on, right? And there's subcults and ver- all kinds of different versions of cults. But I don't think the word. I don't think any word had more impact on the destruction of religion than the word cult. People associate the word with cult and start using it against organized religions because really there isn't too much difference between organized religions and cults. Although today, for some reason, you're allowed to say all religions are cults except for Islam, Muslims. Why? Why are you not allowed to say that one? All religions are equally cultish, right? They're equally irrational. Why do you have to... I don't understand what that is, but anyways. So in the old days, cults were like based out of, you know, the Vatican and and churches. Today, uh, cults are organized by, in our our universities, by fatuous ideological teachers, you know, arrogant, emotionally unstable, batshit crazy. You know, interesting word if you think of fatuous, you know, it's, conceited, foolishly conceited, you know, especially in a smug or self-satisfied way. I think that word perfectly describes the, the arrogance and, and stupidity of, you know, university professors today. Yes, we can all be idiots, right? I mean, at times we, we can all think we're right. That's, that's sort of the key point, I think, with critical thinking that we, we all can think we're right when we're wrong, but then to recognize it, to, to acknowledge, hey, you know, I could be wrong. I am wrong. Huh, look at that. To accept that you're wrong, to accept that you may not be right. This this concept, I think, is way beyond any university today. It's just, you know, I am right. I am, you know, dictum, dogma. This is what we say. You know, it's, it's ridiculous how low the quality of universities are today, especially the Ivy League ones. It's, it's an inverted, I don't know what happened. Well, I could guess. I don't know what happened, but I could guess. A critical thinker, a true critical thinker would not call themselves an expert. Now saying that, I automatically think of the logical fallacy of no true Scotsman. So I I sound like I'm using that fallacy on it, but maybe I am. Who knows? But uh, the word expert has been ruined by, by people who describe themselves and they turn out to be wrong. When I hear the word expert today, I automatically think that they are fatuous. They are wrong. They're fallacious. I don't know what word to describe them. They're idiots and they don't know what the hell they're talking about because they're, they're calling themselves an expert. (laughs) So that's, uh, that's something to watch out for. So feeding the monster. I don't know if I talked about feeding the monster yet. But feeding the monster, you know, it's closely tied to other psychological techniques 
used by manipulators. You know, repetition is, a, is an integral part, you know, of feeding the monster. And, and so is priming. There's, there's a lot of sub-techniques that we probably won't go into in this video. Just try to focus on the concept of feeding the monster. So we can feed the monster internally. Or, you know, if we're exposed to uh, an external feed the monster triggers, we can be manipulated into feeding someone else's monster in our own minds. It's like, uh, it's like, it's like mind rape and our minds are now pregnant with their evil monster baby, which is primed to grow into a full fledged monster that controls what we think about a specific person or topic. You know, all we need, all we need to do is, is feed it and it will grow. But if we don't feed it, it won't grow. It'll just disappear, right? So we can go over a few cultural models that refer to feeding the monster. You might think, well, what's feeding? A lot of us have heard of feeding the monster, right? And there's, cause there's, there's, you know, cultural models, urban legends, you know, about feeding the monster. You know, the one that will come to mind is the, the, the Cherokee urban legend about, you know, the urban legend about the Cherokee man who was telling his grandson about the, uh, the battle between the two wolves inside us all, the one good wolf and the one bad wolf. And whichever wolf wins is the wolf that you feed. So if you got all these negative things and you're feeding that negative wolf, it will make you a negative person. And if you feed, feed the positive wolf, wolf, it'll take over. And, you know, it's sort of like the yin and the yang, right? The, of the, the Buddhists, is the Buddhists with the yin yang? I don't know. Buddhists. I don't know. A lot of these philosophies become uh, borderline cults. Then there's the model of your emotions being close to you. You know, they're opaque, they're fun, uh, but they will grow if you feed them. And, and they block all your rational thoughts that are clear, transparent, and harder to see. So, you know, people always talk about don't feed your emotions. You know, they'll, they'll block your rational thoughts, right? So, and their emotions are fun, right? People, it's fun to get, you know, obviously we wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. You know, although is it really enjoyable getting angry? I don't know. Why do people allow themselves to do that? Because the emotions are, you know, split seconds. And then your feelings after that are what you control. So you'll feel, you know, a trigger that might get you angry, but that will only last literally for a few seconds. And then you decide what happens after that. You know, if you feed that feeling and it, and it starts growing, so that feeling is the monster triggered by the emotion of anger or or whatever, you know, we have all kinds of, all kinds of emotions. Then there's the model of the council of instincts. Your instincts uh, present you with gut feelings. Sometimes they're quiet and sometimes they're not, you know, you can, you can choose to either listen to their counsel or, or not, you know, the decision always remains with you, not with your instincts. If you're sitting outside, uh, you know, in the woods and you're having a fire, a little fire and you're by yourself and there's nobody around for miles and, you know, you hear uh, branches breaking and, you know, coyotes or wolves howling, you, you might start getting fear. You might start feeling, hmm, looking behind you. Is there an animal behind me? What's going on? Right? So um, that's not to say that it's a rash, it's irrational or rational. It's just, a. uh, a gut feeling, a feeling that you have. Now it doesn't mean there is something there and it doesn't mean you need to pay attention to it. You could say, you know, I'm just being irrational. Even if it is a coyote or even if it is a wolf, you know, I'll be all right. The chance of me getting attacked or whatever, or maybe you will get attacked, right? I'm not saying right or wrong, but the point here being that, you know, your feelings are, I think your feelings, 
point being that your feelings are uh, fed to you through instincts, through emotions, and then they turn into feelings and those feelings become monsters. So you can feed that monster, that trigger of fear from the wolf. You know, the, is it a good wolf or is it a bad wolf? We don't know. It might be the, the Cherokee guy there. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> but you are in control of, of how your, your feelings grow. Your feelings are the monsters. They may be good monsters. They might be bad monsters. Typically, monsters are not good things. So typically, you don't want to feed them. And you don't want them to get out of control. And, and you don't want them to obscure your rational thought, right? Which maybe is very cultural-based. Maybe I'm just... just Everything I'm saying is based on the Euclidean, uh, you know, Western culture, which is what I'm going to do because that's what I am. I am what I am. And this is what I'm going to say. So I think it's, uh, personally, I think it's more like your, your, the council of instincts is, is they're all warnings and, and alarms and, and whatever makes you the part that, that makes you decide your rational mind is the, the part that creates bravery, trust, reason, courage, empathy, uh, contentment, stoicism, stoicism, stoicism. Yeah. Stoicism. Uh, you know, it's more complicated. Obviously reality is way more complicated than these, these models. These models are dumbed down versions, right. To, to try to, you know, examine these things. Right. I think your instincts are more about warnings than they are about, uh, potential benefits. I guess, you know, food and, you know, breeding and all that kind of stuff. You'll have instincts towards that as well, obviously. But when you think of, when you try to think, when you try to think of the layers in your mind, the strata, uh, you know, there's base functions, you know, your, your heart, blood pressure, you know, the, 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 the kind of muscles and stuff. And above the, the base functions, you know, the core there, there are your instincts. And then we have, you know, emotions. Now I could be wrong. This is just sort of another model, but kind of makes sense, right? You have the core of your brain and controlling the automatic stuff. And then you have your instincts on top of that. And then you have your emotions that are tied to your instincts, but on top of your instincts. And then, you know, they only last again for like a second or two. The instincts obviously are long lasting. And, uh, but the, the, when you feel an emotion, it's only a short blast, short trigger, poof, poof, comes and goes. And then your, your feelings, uh, from that linger and how they linger is based on how you decide, you decide for them to linger. You decide for them not to linger. You know, your feelings could be a spider sense. could be like you sense danger, like you're out in the woods in the fire and there's a wolf creeping around you. You know, you don't know if it's a good wolf or a bad wolf. Chances are it's probably a bad wolf or a hungry wolf. Why would it be creeping around? You could be curious. Maybe you have food and you didn't tie it high up on the tree like you're supposed to. Or, or you know, or maybe you hold on to that feeling, you know, that these, these emotions or the, these instincts and emotions triggered, right? So you get the instinct of you know, spider sense, and then you get the emotions of fear, and then maybe you're going to fan them. You're going to feed them, <gasps> you know, then you're going to start being irrational and thinking, oh, there's a pack of wolves going to kill me. You know, chances are there's probably not, right? Could be, depending on where you are. I don't know. But you decide whether you let that pass, you know, cut the strings and let it go, or you feed that monster. 
and you get more and more scared. And then what are you going to do? You're in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night having a fire. <laughs> you know? going to climb a tree? I don't know. But, you know, sometimes it's, there's no benefit to, you know, being fearful. You know, you could be that, that fear might give you uh, a sense of, you know, survival. Well, I should do things just in case, you know what I mean? Like tying your food on a bag and pulling it way high up in the tree. So, you know, they don't, they're not attracted and rip through your tent to smell it. Um, typically I don't think wolves would attack people, you know, at a camp. There's, I, I was up in the Arctic one time and there was these guys who were attacked. This one guy was attacked by a pack of wolves. They ripped his stomach out. Ugh, anyways, you could Google that. It was at, uh, it was at points North landing. Anyways, uh, what was I talking about? Spider senses, feelings, um, yeah, then after your your emotions and your feelings, you have your rational your rational thoughts. And you obviously control your your rational thoughts and your reasoning. And you know, and, and that sort of a, a, again, it's a it's a a gradient to, you know, what steers you, you what part of your brain is actually making the decisions. You know, a part that steers, you know, that it's control what you do is based on your perceptions. Now, is that a uh you you know you can you can have automatic like it's a lot of people do this when you're driving or when you're thinking about other things you can allow your body to sort of go on automatic and you make decisions and stuff based on maybe just your feelings and and you know you don't you're not really thinking about it and then there's times when you can consciously take control like when somebody's trying to dupe you and you're like whoa all of a sudden you're snapped into it and you're watching this person you realize this guy's trying to dupe me right so it depends if you want to be an automatic or if you want to be in manual control it's it's a it's a bizarre thing when you start thinking about it then there's this weird part of your brain that's always making scenarios like when you're when you're waiting for a subway and you're standing on the platform and the trains come and you're thinking in the back of your mind you know is somebody going to come up behind me and push me in front of this train, right? You know, is that rational? Is it irrational? I don't know. But that's, your brain is creating these these scenarios all the time. All, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And, you know, it, it, it might cause you to, to look behind yourself. You know, is there somebody there? It might cause you to, you know, that's pretty, you know, spider sense. I don't know. Uh, might get you to back up against a wall. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you saw a suspicious character earlier on, you know, the, didn't look like they're all there. I don't know. Is it crazy? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, it probably saved, a, you know, a lot of our ancestors' lives, you know, when you get the spider sense. is it? Does it mean there was somebody there who was going to push you? No, absolutely not. Like you think of a dog or, or we have uh, rabbits. You know, the rabbits are scared of everything, right? Does it mean somebody was going to attack them? No, right? Doesn't matter. They don't care. They were scared anyways. And they might go run and hide. Did they need to go run and hide to survive? No. Was the, were they actually under any threat? No. Did they think they were under threat? Yeah. Right. Were they right? No. They were wrong. Same with humans. You know, a lot of times you might think you're under a threat and you're not. Right. And it depends. You might feed this monster. You get this these feelings. You know, these uh, these random scenarios that your mind creates, and and you know, you might start feeding them. Right. So I think that's what happens when you. Uh, you see these crazy guys walking down the street, screaming, yelling, waving their arms, arguing with themselves, right? Are they creating scenarios in their mind and they're, and they're arguing with some imaginary person and they're getting pissed off about the scenario that they're creating and they're feeding the monster, or maybe they're living, reliving past experiences. You know, either way, I think they're, they're feeding a monster either way. And, and obviously to the point where they're, you know, screaming and yelling on the street when there's nobody there, you know, 
And all they have to do is just stop feeding the monster, let it go, cut the strings, walk away, right? So I think feeding the monster can lead to <laughs> long-term adverse effects, right? As seen by, uh, you know, people walking down Young Street. But these these scenarios that our minds make up, they're, they're kind of funny and, and bizarre when you start paying attention to them. You know, uh, normally these, these brief thoughts, these scenarios, they come and go like, uh, like dreams until you notice it or, or, you know, begin to feed it, causing it to manifest into a, a larger idea that, that may, you know, you might even ponder or you might act on, or, or you might immediately forget about it like a dream, which is kind of crazy. It's like the, I guess there's no point in remembering it, you know, if, if nothing happened, and you you thought maybe you thought you were. And it's not always fear, though. You know, it's uh, I guess part of stream of consciousness. You know, which is uh, clearly affected by our environment, where we are, where you know the situation that we're in. I'm sure this is you know where meditation might start entering the conversation. I hate that word, but uh, meditation is just so goddamn boring. I'm not going to talk about it. You know, every time I try to fall asleep, so. We're not going to talk about meditation, but instincts are weird. Our instincts encompass uh, a large subset of subconscious feelings that can cause you to act. Now, I don't know if there really is a subconscious. You know, I've read people saying, you know, subconscious is actually not real, but I don't know. It seems kind of real. There's obviously instincts. There are things that, you know, trigger us to do things that we're not conscious, consciously doing. So then, yeah, I think there is a subconscious or regardless of what these freaks are saying, I, I, I'm going to use my rational mind to think that there is some kind of a subconscious, you know, you take nurturing, you know, the, the instinct, the nurturing instinct, for example, you know, a, a nurturing woman, uh, she, she wouldn't have a single, a single feeling, you know, that, that makes her nurturing, you know, or it would be a, a complex array of, of different feelings, you know, through a, a period of, you know, a long, many years, her life, or as, you know, maybe if she, she doesn't have to be a mother to be nurturing. You know, people could be nurturing, you know, doesn't have to be a woman, could be a nurturing male too or whatever. But, you know, but these, these, these feelings and triggers that make her nurturing will ebb and flow, but, you know, but it'll always keep her behavior generally in line with, you know, that of somebody who is nurturing, you know, she's not consciously in control of that. So the instinct, the nurturing instinct doles out these these feelings and, and emotions and cause her to act in specific ways, you know, she could override these, uh, you know, these feelings, but you know, she's not consciously controlling them. Right. So that I think that's subconscious. In fact, it might be possible to convince her that her nurturing feelings are wrong, you know, and that she shouldn't be nurturing or, or, you know, she should be out in the workforce. She should be a mean bitch. Right. She should be forcing people to do things that she wants to get done. Right. You know, but left out of the, the plebeian conditioning, you know, she, she probably would embrace, you know, who she really is and just be nurturing and happy with all that that brings her, you know, probably a sense of completion and contentment, you know, something that a crappy job would never give her, regardless if she's forcing people to do things that she wants them to, because, you know, hear her roar kind of stuff. Right. So what is the monster that we should not feed? The monster is feelings. Feelings are the monster. You know, you get emotions, 
that are, you know, joy, anger, attraction, fear. Attraction lasts longer than a split second. So I don't think attraction really is an emotion, but then you get feelings, you get happiness, bitterness, maybe bitterness is actually an emotion, <laughs> love, worry, you know, these things, the things that last are feelings. The things that are very short are emotions. So if we, we can ride the wave of our emotions and our feelings, touchy feely, right? But you don't have to feed your emotions or your feelings. You, if, if, if this model is true about, you know, emotions just being, you know, temporary, which I read, I don't know, but you know, so it's not, the emotions will come and go. You can know, you can ignore them or not ignore them. You're going to get feelings from these emotions, but you could ride the wave, but don't feed the monster, right? There's no, what's the advantage to you getting worked up over something? It's probably not, right? So the monster could be resentment. It could be hate. It could be some feeling that we don't have a name for yet. We haven't framed it and we haven't named it. Like when you're a kid, you know, you might experience schadenfreude, schadenfreude. I don't know how you pronounce it. The Germans, right? As you know, which is, you know, uh, what's it? Satisfaction over somebody else's, you know, loss, hardship, right? So when you're, if you're playing a, you know, maybe a game and, you know, the other, you lost to some guy and then they lost to somebody else. You might be glad that, that other guy lost, right? So that's, that's schadenfreude, uh, you know, and we didn't know what it was called, right? You still have these feelings. So there's probably a, a boatload of these feelings that we have that we don't, you know, have names for yet, or maybe some other, you know, language does have a name for it, but, uh, that was, uh, that's definitely a good example. So it's, this reminds me of my aunt when she was talking about, uh, she's, she's dead now, but uh, it reminds me of my aunt. She, uh, she was the first person I heard say living well is the best revenge. You know, she, she was in the war as a kid and she experienced a lot of stuff and she had a lot of built up resentment and hate and anger towards a lot of, you know, people. So you know, she, she had said, she told me she'd wasted years being consumed by hatred towards people who have no idea that she's even alive. You know, so her, her frame of mind was not harming anybody but herself. So she decided the best revenge was to live well. Now, I don't know if she read that somewhere or if she came up with it on her own, but she was the first person I heard say that and she explained it to me and she was like, sort of like a warning. Don't, you know, don't let these things consume you. Don't, don't feed the monsters. She didn't say don't feed the monsters, but that's a, you know, metaphorically, that's, that's what was going on. Right? So if, if we have, you know, negative feelings towards some piece of shit person that we, you know, love to see dead, you know, not wasting our valuable time thinking about them is, is the best revenge. Now that of course there's going to be, it's <laughs> not I mean you want to see everybody dead or people dead, you know, maybe lower levels, right? I don't know if there's anybody, you know, well, maybe. So, I mean, does that mean, it just doesn't mean that you can, you, you have to stop hating people, right? And sing Kumbaya and, and, and toast to world peace. You know, hate is a valid response. You know, we, we have it built in us doesn't mean you need to act on it, right? And that's the whole point here is to not act. Don't feed the monster. You know, there's nothing wrong with hating someone, even if you're wrong, even if, or even if you're right, maybe they're, maybe they're, they're a justifiable person to hate, right? Maybe they're not. Maybe you got things wrong and you thought that they're the type of person based on your assumptions and you're wrong. But regardless, it is a valid, uh, feeling. If you want to hate somebody, go ahead and hate them. 
acting on it is a different story or spreading lies. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that you go on. Of course, you know, it's not, there's a lot of other things that are not valid to do, but the, the idea of mentally hating someone, go ahead. Why not? Right. So there's the thought police out there that are, you know, pushing you that you cannot hate, you know, anybody you cannot. Well, why not? You're the thought police. This is Orwellian. You hate somebody, embrace it. You hate them, don't act on it. Don't feed the monster, cut the strings, walk away. Embrace the hate, you know, go ahead, right? You could still hate someone without wasting your time thinking about them. And if you you feel yourself starting to think about them, you tell yourself, don't feed the monster. You know, you, you consciously think or do something that you find more interesting. You know, there are all kinds of monsters, of course, not just hate, right? There's infatuation. You know, all teenagers especially are prone to infatuation. I think it's part of the process of growing up, you know, the finding a, a mate, right? You get infatuated, you start thinking about somebody. Girls think about a certain boy and, you know, get a crush or boys think about a certain girl and get a crush, right? Whatever. This tendency has, has been capitalized by scummy record companies that try to foster, you know, the infatuation of teens, right, to their they're fabricated carny art idols. You know, carny isn't, you know, you know, a carny is somebody who works at a, a carnival. Yeah, no, no, no disrespect to carnies, but uh, I, I do, I'm giving some uh, shade, throwing some shade at the, uh, the, the celebrities out there who are trying to capitalize on the instinct of infatuation, the susceptibility of kids to in, be infatuated with somebody who they focus their attention on. And so it's, it's same with Hollywood actors. They, they know this and this is sort of what they're pushing. So although I think society is growing, uh, uh, out of the whole celebrity crush thing, I think, you know, that, that zeitgeist has moved on, you know, you know, zeitgeist means, you know, the spirit of the, of the time. Right. So this, this, this quirk in, in human behavior still exists. And if, if someone is fixuate, fixuated, fixated, on someone who they don't hate, this fixation, this attention, this, you know, feeding the monster will make them become infatuated with them. And, you know, infatuated, of course, means foolish, idiotic state of being, usually a strong and unreasonable passion or admiration for someone or thing that does not deserve it. So the same plan goes here. Don't feed the monster. Don't become infatuated. These, these are weaknesses, not weaknesses, but traits of our mind. I'm sure they were around. There was a purpose for it, you know, for, you know, finding a mate and, you know, breeding or whatever, right. Out in the, in the wild. If you have a kid who's becoming infatuated with someone or something, it's, it's critical that you explain to them that they understand the concept of not feeding the monster and that feeding the monster will distort their perception of reality and make them, you know, uh, there's, there's no, there's no upside to that, right. That, that make them, uh, be infatuated with something or someone that doesn't deserve it. And, and, you know, think about something, right? This, this of course happens to inanimate objects, obviously, as well as, you know, um, celebrities or whoever, or it could be, you know, a high school crush or whatever. Right. So a common, uh, when it comes to gear or, or object, inanimate objects is, you know, people have heard of gas, you know, the gear acquisition syndrome, this can happen to musicians who can't stop buying instruments, photographers who can't stop buying gear, uh, video gamers who can't stop upgrading their system. You know, anyone who uses any kind of gear, they, they, 
the, the you know the way they can get control of this is to be aware of it and and not and stop feeding the monster stop you know it sounds simple but it is simple right and advertisers want you to feed the monster you know they they need the you know they'll tell you you need this shit we're selling look how shiny it is look how tasty it is or or look at this celebrity look at this this rock star you know you know i think this is how hoarders uh develop right they they feed uh, the acquire more shit monster and you know it's it's just as bad you know they need to let go of things as well so there's two sides to it there's the feeding the monster of acquiring and then there's the not letting go of stuff and then you put those two things together and you get a hoarder right so those two things are beneficial you know the the the, the not feeding the monster and letting go of things we need to let go of things we need to not feed the monster we need to cut the strings we need to walk away you know these things are simple to do right cut the strings don't feed it. We can choose to ignore, you know, the, our council of instincts, you know, or advertisers or anybody telling us anything. We are in control. We can choose to ignore it. We can choose to walk away. Same goes with irrational fears. You know, when you're feeding the monster, you know, you, we're choosing to allow ourselves to be scared of spiders or, or whatever, you know, we could suck it up and face our fear and get on with life. You don't need, you know, you think of phobias, you know, of course being, you know, irrational fears, you know, that you're not letting them go. So it's, it's a phobia is actually a serious condition, right? It's not just being scared of spiders. It's being, you know, petrified, you know, terrified. You, you can't put your shoes on because you're scared. In Australia, that might be a valid thing to do, right? To be checking your shoes for spiders and stuff. But, you know, but then these, these, again, this, this crazy woke movement, they come up with, you know, words like Islamophobia, which is not an irrational fear like arachnophobia. Islamophobia is a woke buzzword. It has nothing to do with irrational fear. You know, I personally don't want to submit to the will of any religion or any fictional gods, and that includes Islam. And it's it's not an irrational fear. It's this is just common sense. You know, I'm sure there's going to be some woke turds out there that, you know, call me an Islamophobe. Well, they'll call me anything anyways, because I'm not a woke zombie, right? But they'll, they'll throw these, these, the shade. Is that the right term, right? They'll throw shade at me. They'll call me an Islamophobe for not wanting to submit to the, the religion. Yet at the same time, these same morons are anti-religion. Yet if you don't want to submit to this religion, right, they'll <laughs> call you an Islamophobe. It's insane, right? So they can call me all the made-up words they want. It's it's not going to change my mind. The woke crowd is is clearly irrational. Feeding the monster is a mechanism that is utilized by manipulators like politicos, politicos, and the legacy media cabal. We can we can feed the monsters of our own internally, right? Our, our own our instincts and fears, or we can be exposed to external feed the monster triggers from you know somebody on the outside. So uh, yeah, I am. I am done. I'm Gerald Undone. I am not Gerald Undone, but I am done for this episode. It's funny. What do you say at the end of a video? It's odd because you're not getting a response back. So until next time, stay tuned, be square and be there. 